1824, Ludwig van Beethoven completed his final symphony, Symphony No. 9 in D minor. Universally considered Beethoven's greatest masterpiece, the piece and its composer played an integral role in the transition between the classical and romantic eras in Western art music. Beethoven's Ninth, also known as Ode to Joy, later fills the pages of Christian hymnals around the world as the song, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. This work of art, famous for its uplifting and hopeful melodies to congregations for centuries, stands in stark contrast to the tormented artist who created it. So now experience pianist Jay Hinson's modern take on a timeless classic. Thank you. 
Beethoven wrote and completed the Ninth Symphony in 1824, and it's universally considered to be his greatest work. In fact, many consider it one of the greatest compositions in the Western musical canon. Yet, why does no one argue that Beethoven wrote and composed this piece? Well, it's because we have the proof, right? We have the score. Randy today is addressing the question, is the Bible God's word? Randy will take you through a series of factual truths of why we believe, without question, that the Bible is God's inspired word. So please give your attention to Randy Pope. Good morning to all. Glad to have you here today. Looking forward to uh, week number two. Uh, Last week, I know that uh, many of you probably were not able to be with us. You may be here new, and maybe you didn't have an opportunity to catch this online uh, this last week. So just a, a quick little review of what this is all about, as we call an investigative forum. Uh, last week, I, I, I built the case that I think most people truly do want to investigate Christianity at some point in their lifetime, and that is if they are theists, meaning they believe there is a God. If they believe there's a God, then they don't want to be on their deathbed, as we said, saying, sure, I'm glad I didn't investigate the possibility of Jesus being who he claimed to be. At the same time, we want a place that is safe, enjoyable, and brief. That's the way we would like to investigate. And then we can make our own decisions as to what we believe. Uh, last week, if you want to go back and pick it up, which I think would be greatly helpful if you're trying to make this a good investigation, you can go on perimeter.org slash if answers, if answers, and you can go back and see that. Five primary questions we deal with each week. Uh, one last week was, uh, how does a person really find life satisfaction? Where do you go about to find that? Is it even possible? After dealing with that today, we're dealing with the big question, how can Christians believe that the Bible is God's word and that it's really without error? which is the contention of the Christian church, that it's absolutely believable. We say, well, wait, even if it ever was, how did it ever stay that way? Through all the generations, the centuries that it's been handed down, how would anybody ever believe that? That's what we're going to look at today. Then next week, we look at a, a third question, and the third question is this. This, to me, is the biggest of all. It's the most challenging of all. It will take you into realms you've never thought about before. But it's the question, how is it that Christians can believe that God would allow good people, those that are not Christians, but good people, moral, religious people, that they would deserve eternal punishment just because they were not Christians, as Christianity declares Christianity to be a Christian? Uh, why, how, can you, how can you believe that? Then the next question that follows the following week is the question, well, how can Christians believe of all the religious leaders that have ever lived that Jesus is the one and the only way to God? So during that week, we'll look at other religions and comparative and so forth, try to understand how we can believe that. And by the way, the week before, which we're talking about good people deserving their eternal punishment, we'll also address the very challenging question that I hear more than most any other question, and that is, uh, how can a good God allow suffering? All of the painful, hard things that are happening to folks all over the world. What about this last week? How can a God who's in charge allow stuff like that to take place? And then the, uh, the last question that we want to address, if we find there's any merit to the answers to questions one through four, then we want to ask the question, well, what does Jesus say 
is required to have eternal life? What's his perspective on what it really means to be part of his family in the Christian church, the true Christian? So those are the things that we'll be looking at in the primary question. That'll take up uh, about a third of our time together. Then we're going to spend the next portion of our time looking at questions that come out of the Gospel of John. You should have gotten a copy of John. If not, you'll want to get one when you leave. But in John, we have questions in the margin, and we're inviting everyone to read five chapters per week. Last week would be six chapters. There are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. And to look at the questions that are in the margin and see if you can find the answers to those questions so that you will read in an informed way. And the answer to the question is found immediately across from where that question is. So I will take a few of those questions and will address them because it really does help us all to understand the Christian faith, to look at it through the eyes of this particular book called John, all right? Then the third portion of our time is spent with Q&A, and we give the opportunity that you can ask the questions here, and then also you can ask online. Uh, you've got a little insert card that tells you how you can text questions, even as I'm talking. You can text questions. You can email questions. We're going to start our questions this week with some that you asked last week. Uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to, uh, to have your questions answered. Uh, last week we had so many from the floor that uh, I didn't take any of those. and want to make sure that if you don't feel comfortable doing them in an audible way here, that you can put them online. So uh, we'll start with a few of those. I've not seen the questions, and that, that's okay. I'll be the, the, the first to say, hey, I may not be able to answer the question at all. And I'll say, I don't know. I do that virtually every time we do one of these. There'll be one, two, or three questions. I'll say, ah, good question. But I will research it, try to find the answer the next week if possible. If I can't then, I'll say, I don't know. And I want you to know this, that I'm not here trying to debate anybody. That's not my goal. I don't ever do that. I meet with hundreds. I've met with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men over the last 45, 50 years. Uh, nearly every week, one, two, or three, four, or five times, I'll meet with different people to talk about the faith of Christianity. And I make it real clear to them, as I do to you, I'm here to help you. And I'm not here to win a debate. You know, it's not my goal to persuade you. It's my goal to say, I want, I want you to have the opportunity to investigate and to see Christianity in a real appropriate way, what it really says. And I think you're going to find that to be accurate here. We will be pretty much clearly on what Christianity through its history has always taught. And then it's your call. If you want to buy in to believe it, we just want to make sure you've had the opportunity to investigate. So let's jump into the question. The, uh, I think the, the big, big, big beginning question in reality is this. What about this Bible? If everything we're saying is coming from the Bible, then wait, wait, wait. How can you believe the Bible is even accurate? How, how could I believe it's even accurate? Well, I'm going to give you uh, six, uh, I'm going to call them realities, Six realities, that's my opinion, they may not be in your opinion, but six realities which make it, and I'm going to call it uh, reasonable, that it would be reasonable to believe that the Bible is God's word. Now you need to know this, you cannot prove, you cannot prove that the Bible is God's word. Anybody that says I can prove it, I wouldn't buy that. No, they may give you reasonable evidence to believe it. 
you had to make a decision now. Do you think Beethoven really did score that? There's no way you can prove it. No one is living today that saw him do it, that we can say that is reputable, you know, observation and therefore it's true. No, we don't have that. But there is reason to believe that it is. And by the way, don't you think Jay did a reasonably good job on that song? Man, I thought, wow. I, uh, I, I, I couldn't help but think what, uh, I thought two things. This is where my mind goes. The first thing I thought is, what would Beethoven have said had he heard Jay play that? He would probably have said, I never saw that coming out of that <laughs> when I scored that. And number two, I wondered how fast can he text on a, on a phone? Man, oh man. <laughs> but anyway, but you can't prove the Bible. So I'm just going to try to give you some reasons to believe. You know, here's been my experience with meeting with, again, hundreds of people investigating Christianity. Virtually all, not, I won't say virtually all, but a, a large percentage of people that I meet with, the first thing that we talk about when we get into the Bible is I say, I'd love to know what your thought is before we get into this. What do you think about the Bible? And, and typically the answer is something like this. It is a very good book. Uh, I think it has a lot of good, good things for people. And I say, well, so you're not, you're not where I would be believing that it's the word of God and it's given inspired, meaning God breathed, and it's now left to us an infallible word. And the answer virtually always is no. I couldn't believe that. And then I say, can I give you some reasons why I can believe that it is? Not, not, I'm not going to prove to you it is, but let me tell you why I can believe that it is. When I finish whatever I'm sharing, not always, but I would say in the majority of times we meet, here's the response that I get in different words, but here's the response. I'm not buying it because of what you just said. But I will say this, I now understand how you might be able to believe it and without shelving your brain. Because most people think Christians that believe the Bible could possibly be God's word, have just taken their brain, set it aside and say, oh, it's just faith. I don't know. I believe it because I believe it. No, there has to be reason for anybody intellectually to buy into something. Still, maybe wrong. But just to give you the reasons through history why so many incredibly large numbers of people have bought into the Bible being what it claims to be. So I'll throw these up. You've got a, an insert, I think. Do you have an insert with some of the notes on this? You do. So uh, I'll, I'll just walk through this pretty quickly. Number one of these six realities, the Bible's historical reliability. There's something to be said about the historical reliability. A, a fellow, Lewis... Uh, Marcos, in Apologies for the 21st Century, writes this way. In order to substantiate the basic claims of Christ and the essential doctrines of Christianity, listen to this, the apologist, someone who's defending the faith of Christianity, need not prove the inspiration or inerrancy of the Bible. Very important. What he need only to do is to show the Bible to be reliable in its account of Jewish and Christian history. Interesting point. If you look at the dates, the places, the people of the Bible, you will find that it is an accurate storyline. Archaeological discoveries have done nothing but support the Christian story. 
In fact, it's often been said that archaeology is the Christian's best friend. Archaeologist William F. Albright, brilliant, brilliant, was a brilliant scholar. This is what he said, discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of the innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. Now, another, and this a Jewish archaeologist, uh, Nelson Gluick, this is how he writes it. He says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. And so a historian uh, from Oxford, A.H., uh, and I think it's Sice, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but he, this is what he says. Time after time, the assertions of a skeptical criticism have been disproved by archaeological discovery, events, and personages that were, confi uh, uh, were um, confidently pronounced to be mythical, have been shown to be historical. And the older writers have turned out to have been better acquainted with what they were describing than the modern critic who has flouted them. All kind of extra biblical writings, by the way, and I won't go into one of these in just a few minutes, but uh, uh, one such as Flavius Josephus. If you go to the universities around the world, and the United States certainly included, uh, he would be considered the great Jewish historian. Um, the, uh, uh, I mean, just work after work, very, very honored. Uh, one man, Dr. Jeffrey Brashears, he writes, viewed merely as an ancient text, it would be regarded by all serious and honest scholars as probably the most reliable historical text of the ancient world. So uh, the historicity of it, the accuracy, is something to be noted. I would add to that a second a reasonable belief, and that is the Bible's scientific reliability. This Dr. Brashears, he writes on, he says, not only does the Bible support modern cosmology, including the instantaneous creation of a constant expansion of the universe, but it did so more than 3,000 years ago in stark contrast to all other ancient cosmological theories, and long before Moses and other writers of the text would have known the truth about such phenomena. Indeed, the Bible describes features of the universe that would not be discovered until recent times. This knowledge is only uh, explicable in terms of supernatural revelation. And so I think maybe you have it in your notes that uh, now science is admitting that uh, outside power is required to start the universe, which is certainly the story of the Bible, and that uh, no evidence exists to show living creatures reproductive outside their own kind. That's a very important uh, part of the discussion about science and the Bible. Uh, this scientist, uh, an agnostic scientist, by the way, uh, Stephen Gold, he says this, species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on earth. They appear in fossil record looking much the same as when they finally disappear. Now, I want to stop there just a minute because this is a big question. I'm asked this over and over again. Uh, Randy, how do you explain, the Bible does say that God created, and we know science has proven the fact that, that that's, not, that's not the way it is. It, it's evolved. Evolution is the answer today, and, and all good scientists know that. And immediately when I hear that, I say, I bet you they've not read much in terms of all views. 
Now, Christians like myself have had to read the other view because we're raised hearing it and believing this is what it's supposed to be. Education's, you know, taught us that. But uh, so many of those who would hold to evolution have never read a Christian perspective. And so I'll often uh, pose this question. I say, let me ask you the question. Have you ever, have you ever read, let's say two books, even one book, from a brilliant scientist who's very reputable and honored in the scientific world, who is a creationist and writes why he or she is a creationist. Have you ever done that? And uh, the answer I always hear is, no, I really haven't. Now, there have been people I'm sure that have and who would still not agree. But I'm just saying the people I talk to say, I've never have. And I say, here's my opinion. It may be a wrong opinion, but it is mine. My opinion is this, that if you read a couple of books from legitimate Christian scientists who were brilliant in their fields, and you were to read why they can be creationists and not evolutionists, I'm not saying you'd become a creationist, but I'm telling you this, you would have serious doubts about the belief that it all came about by evolution. I often use this little description. I say, imagine that uh, you're walking along in the, in the 450 A.D., long before there's any such thing as technology. And as you're walking along uh, maybe the seashore, you find washed up uh, a little instrument. It's this thing right here. We call it an iPhone. And you say, what in the world could that be? And you hit a button, and there's a picture comes up. And you go, wow. And then you see some numbers that about every periodically it flips to another number. And it's a numerical number that you're used to saying, well, that's amazing. Look at that. And then you happen to hit a little button on it. And next thing you know, you go, and there's a picture of something right in front of the phone. And you realize this thing just did something to make that right here. Uh, and you're just amazed. You go into it. You see all of these different things that it does. Now tell me this. What is the possibility in your mind, just the possibility, that it could have evolved over, let's not just say millions, let's say trillions of years, this thing evolved over time without any outside influence. It just happened to become what it is. And every one of us would say, I can't buy that. I don't believe it. Then you take the human body. And sometimes we don't understand the difference between the complexity of this and the human body. There, I have a, a very close friend who might be, is considered one of the greatest scientists in the world today. Uh, he actually, his team that he led made the greatest medical discovery in modern history. They said he could be up for one of the greatest awards of all time in, in science. And, and he, deal, he deals with genetics and, and, and the cell. And I'm talking to him, who is a Christian. I say, here you're one of the greatest scientists in the world. You're brilliant. And you believe in creationism. Why do you believe in it? And he says, well, it's not just because the Bible says so. It's because what I see in science. And here's his comment. He says, I don't see how a real scientist 
could ever be an evolutionist. Well, there are plenty of them. We know that. But he says, academically, I don't know how they do that. And he told me why. He said, do you know that the cell is so small, the human cell, you cannot see it with the naked eye. We have to use, in our genetic research, we have to use incredible power to blow it up to even be able to see it. But he says, within the human cell, there is the DNA, and most of us know the chromosome ladders. And he said, you have two upright, you have 46 chromosomes, upright ladders, and you have the, the rung ladder. He said, do you know that if you looked and counted the number of rungs in the, in the typical cell, he says it's around 6 billion rungs in one cell. Can you imagine that? 6 billion. And he says, if you take the upright pieces of the DNA and we lay them out and take all the rungs and lay them out, in the average size body, the number of cells that are in the average size body, he says, not the moon, but the sun, you would go back and forth from the sun six times. That's how long that becomes. Is that not amazing? He says, it's just incredible. He said, you know what causes one disease? One of those lung, rungs just being broken. Just broken. He said, we found out if you can find it and fix it, it'll start healing the body itself. That's how we're curing cancer just today. It's slow, but we can do it. And he says, Randy, when you see this body, and that's a cell, and then you think of the eye, let me tell you, it makes this look pretty dinky. I have a good friend. He's a dear friend now. Uh, when I met him, I'd, ne I'd never known, never heard of him, known of him, but uh, we were thrown together in a golf foursome. And uh, we get to the turn of the nine, and uh, I'm in a different cart. I've, I've just met him. How are you doing? And, and we're playing the, the next nine. He said, hey, you mind walking with me the, the next hole? I said, I'd love to. So we're walking down together. And I remember he had his big cigar in his hand, and, and uh, he's just walking down, talking. And he says, you know what I hate? I said, what? I hate hellfire and brimstone churches. Now, note, I'm a pastor. I don't know what he knows of me or anything, but what do I say to that? And I said, well, that's, uh, that's something that I've heard before. I, I, I think I probably understand, but I said the context of what, what, what makes you say that, that you hate hellfire and brimstone churches? And he says, because Perimeter Church is one of them. I said, oh, really? I said, well, I'm the pastor there. He said, I don't know. He said, I said, so you've been there? He said, one time. And you heard hell, fire, and brimstone from me? He said, well, this is what I heard. I heard you say Jesus is the only way to God. That's hell, fire, and brimstone right there. I said, man, what a great discussion. I said, if you ever want to get together and have lunch... I'd be happy to meet with you and we could interact on whatever questions might exist. He said, I'd like that. So we get together. And we talked and I showed him a little diagram that I showed you last week. And he said, hmm, I can't believe in your Christianity though. I said, why? He said, because you got to admit it. The Bible says that God created. I said, it does. He says, and science has proven that God didn't create. I'm not going to believe something that goes against realities of science. I said, well, we can talk about that one, too. And so we're, we're in the midst of talking. And so 
we get to the end of four weeks just going through these questions that we're going through as a group here. And uh, he said, this has been one of the most intriguing things I've ever done, go through these questions. He said, this has been absolute, but he said, I will not become a Christian. And at the end I said, and what is it primarily that keeps you? He said, uh-uh, God did not create. I know he didn't create. I said, well, I just wanted to help you investigate. That's fine. It was probably a month or two later. I get a phone call from this guy. He's overseas. He calls me from overseas. He's on a business trip. And he says, Randy, I just had to tell you. He said, I've been sitting on the porch, little deck of my hotel room in this country, and I'm overlooking one of the most beautiful mountain ranges in the world. And he says, I had to break. And I have to tell you, only God could create that mountain range. And he said, I found myself giving my life to God. I think I'm a Christian. This man became a faithful member of this church. He moved to Florida uh, because of his businesses and the other, but he moved to Florida. But uh, I just with him a couple of weeks ago. This man believes in, you know, he searches the scriptures. He, amazing changed life. And he said, I couldn't get away from God had to be the creator. That does not mean he is the creator, and it doesn't mean that you should believe that he is. But uh, the point is, is that, let me tell you, there is a, there's a strong argument in design. This is a design requires a designer. It's the greatest argument of a creator. But that's what everybody has to decide on their own. Let's go to the next point. Let's just turn right to the next point. Um, number three, the his historicity of the resurrection. Uh, Flavius Josephus, this is the, uh, uh, the author of the Antiquities, who's so famous and known and used in universities all over the world. He's a first century Jewish historian, so he was not a Jesus follower. But this is what he said, and I put underlined to be fair, because over time there have been some that have challenged whether the underline was part of the original. I think there's more evidence that it was, but maybe it wasn't. So you can discount it, perhaps, if you choose. But this is what Flavius Josephus said in the Antiquities. He says, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these things and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of these Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now, this is a man who lived literally just a few years after the death of Jesus. So there were people alive during Jesus' time when he was writing as one of the great Jewish historians. So the, uh, the next uh, uh, little sub-point there about the resurrection is this. I think it's very interesting to know that, do you know that historically the record says, not the Bible, that each of the apostles, there were 12 apostles, they died a martyr's death in believing in Jesus. Now imagine if there was no resurrection. I mean, and you knew there was none. You were there and there was no resurrection. 
and they're going to put you to death for your belief in Jesus. Don't you think you go, okay, time out. Ah, this was a fun little ride till now, but I want to tell you what, I, I don't believe he really rose. They apparently had conviction. What brought that conviction? They believed in a resurrection. Doesn't mean he rose from the dead, but that's an important point. We'll get to that when we come to Jesus in one of the next questions in a few couple of weeks. Then let's look at number four, the Bible's uh, unified theme. Just to note, the Bible is written over a period of 1,500 years. There were 40 authors. They were written in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic. They're from different continents and different cultures, and there's the absence of contradictions. Now, some of you will say there are contradictions, and from time to time, we get some of those contradictions. I've yet to find a contradiction that has convinced me that it is a contradiction. Doesn't mean it's not a contradiction. There are some things that are challenges in the Bible, but you look and you study and try to figure them out, and you go, oh, well, that explains it. Well, am I foolish? Maybe so. But the point is, everybody says it's riddled with contradictions. There's basically only two Two things in the historical record that people still hold up. And though, again, there's answers to those questions, I believe. But my answers may not persuade someone else. But please don't think they're just all of these contradictions. All these authors, they, con they didn't contradict each other. One single united theme. Number five of six, the Bible's fulfilled prophecies. The, don't know if you know it, but there are over 300 fulfilled prophecies out of the Old Testament, including these. That the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, he would be descendants of David, he would be betrayed by a friend, he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, um, his hands and feet would be pierced, he would be crucified with thieves, and he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. All of those things written in the Old Testament about Jesus. Now, I just quoted seven things. There are about 300 things in the Old Testament about this Messiah, Jesus. Now, I was a math major. I cannot show you how this, I've, I've taken courses in probability and so forth, and know kind of how you get there. But if you take only eight of the 300 and you did an odds, odds calculation of time, different people who wrote these, different places, all the detail we've said, and you were to calculate just a probability of that coming true, all eight of them over that time period, the number would be one, and you'd have to put a comma and 17 zeros that follow it. I don't know if you have any idea how long that is, but it is beyond imagination. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a lot, I'll say that. If you did 300, who knows? Number six, the Bible's uh, manuscript preservation. Uh, there's uh, something that would be interesting to you to know. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, perhaps. The Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, until 1947, had never been uh, discovered. These, uh, the oldest manuscripts at the time were in the 19th century, or the 9th century A.D., not 19th, but 9th century. Those were the oldest that we had, so you couldn't go back any further. Then the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947 in some caves in Israel. And they contained not the whole of every book but of the Old Testament, but it did have all but Esther, at least parts of it, of the book of Esther. Now, the interesting thing, this took 
a thousand years back, so you're going down from the ninth century, a thousand years. Keep that in mind. And so the big question of the waiting world was this. When they start looking at this, how different are they going to be than a thousand years afterwards that they found all these manuscripts? And here was the interesting thing. Though they dated so far back, they were virtually duplications. In fact, there was one chapter uh, of 166 words in the book of Isaiah that uh, there was one word change, and that was a three-letter change, and it did not change any meaning of the text. And it made the world stop and say, how can that be? Could it be that God preserved it? Christians sure think so. Doesn't mean that he did. Interesting. We call this an ancient manuscript. If you go to Plato, everybody knows who Plato was, or Aristotle. Do you know that Plato... 1,200 years after his writing, there were seven manuscripts of one of his great works. Aristotle, in 1,400 years later, seven manuscripts. The New Testament, the same period of time, had 14,000 manuscripts. So what I want to do is I want to show you how this works so that you'll understand when Christians say they believe the Bible is without error. I don't think most Christians even know what they mean when they say that. There was, first of all, an autograph. And so I'm going to put a dash there for the first writing of one of the 66 books. That's called the autograph. Now, we have no copies of an autograph today. But you need to understand that when we say the Bible is inspired without error, we're talking about the autograph. Ah, and we don't even have it. Well, that's easy to say. But hold on with me just for a minute. What happened was the autograph would be copied, and there were copyists, and copyists, the word is scribe, copier, scribes would copy the text. And so this one would be sent to a scribe at a particular place, and he might labor for a year or two and get three copies. Well, that's a slow copier, isn't he? Very slow. Because this is what you had to do to copy. You had to follow the law of the scribes. And the law of the scribes, I know you people behind me can't see too well, but the law of the scribes, just kind of follow what I'm doing here. They'd say the boy went to the store, and they had to repeat that. They had to, they had to scribe that or copy it. Now, this isn't exactly it, but I, I mean, I've studied this, and I, I don't have the detail, but it'd be like this. You'd have to say T-H-E, 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 T-H-E. Oh, E-H-T, 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 B-O-Y, B-O-Y. Y-O-B, Y-O-B, and then they'd have to go back and do the boy all the way back and forth and back and forth. They get to the end of the line, and they had to turn around and do it again. Can you think of a more boring life in this world? They spent all day doing this, and they had to follow all the scribes, heavy penalty if not. Do you think that all the scribes followed the law? No. There's error in that, but you know the error would be minimized. So here this is now sent to another community and it's copied three times and this one three, four times and this one three or four times and then this thing goes on and on and on until you get generations later and you've got thousands of copies unlike other ancient because this is viewed as, the, as God's word. Plato, no. Aristotle, no. But the Bible, yeah. So you have these thousands of copies. Now I'm going to just make up a number just for the, the point. Let's say that 
let's say that at this particular time in archaeological discovery that there are 14,000 copies, all right, that we found 14,000. Here's what's interesting. If you look at the 14,000, you might see that there was 62 of them that had variant writings. Some letter, something was changed, all right? That's called a variant writing. And then you look at these thousands of copies, and you see that 42 of them came right here in the same area, and you realize, ah, we know who, who made that problem. It came right down right here at this time. They're all clustered together. Oh, but there's another one. Like this one says, God so loved, if you're familiar with John 3.16, God so loved the Jewish people instead of the world. But there are 42 of those that said that. Well, that's a, a variant writing. And what they're saying is this. Through the science of doing this, we can know by the thousands, just by the percentages, what the original had to say because there's so few variant readings throughout history. So you go back up and say, this is what we know this one originally said based on this scientific approach to elimination based on the odds. So does that mean it's an errant? No, it doesn't. But last thing I'll say on this that might help you, I'll put this over here. It, it, just so you don't get confused when you say, well, wait, I go in the living room and I see a Bible and I look at a particular verse and it's different from the Bible in the bedroom. How can you believe these Bibles are, I mean, which one's even right? You got to understand, this is what you call the autograph. And all of these down here are called transcripts, all right? Transcribed. So those are transcripts. That's of the same language that it was put in. But people of different languages needed what we call a translation so the translation is taking the transcript and putting it in French or putting it in, you know, in, in, in German or English or whatever it may be. Those are going to vary greatly because the translations vary, but the transcripts don't. That's the point. And by the way, just to help you understand this, there are also uh, works that are done where somebody says, oh, my kid, he can't understand the King James or whatever it is. And so I'm going to do what's called a paraphrase. And a paraphrase just puts it in one's own verbiage to make it simple. So it's not word by word accurate at all. It's just giving you the basic storyline. And that's called a paraphrase. Nothing wrong with that, but that is a little different than the original. So those are just some things, uh, hopefully, that will help you uh, understand um, what the Christian means when they say we believe the Bible is God's inerrant word. We're talking about the autograph, which we think we have very reasonable belief to say this is what it originally said. May raise some great questions, hold them to the Q&A, and I'll do my best to respond to them. Okay? So that just gives you some high points for a few minutes. I'd like to move just to a few of the questions that are in the, uh, your book. And so if you have your, your Gospel of John there, I'd like for you to go to question number one. So find question number one, and it is on page number one. And it says this, to whom does the word refer? Why is the name word used? I won't ask you the answer, but I bet you this might help you understand a little bit more. Hopefully if you read at all, you figured out who the word is referred to. 
it was referred to Jesus because it says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's obviously referring to God becoming man in Jesus, right? That's Jesus. Now, the question of why is word used, people don't usually get. And here's how I would explain it. Imagine that I am having a meal with you, and I've never met you. And we're together because we have a mutual friend who says, you guys ought to get together. Y'all would really enjoy being with each other. Okay. So I know what you look like. You know what I look like. I happen to get there to the restaurant a little bit early. I see you walk through the door. Obviously, it's you. And I do like this. You look at me and say, well, that's obvious, Randy. And you wave to me. And you come and you sit down. And then you do your hand up like this. And I put my hand up like that. And we smile at each other a couple times. The waiter comes. We order our food. We get our food. We start eating. We lick our lips toward each other. And I'm like, hmm, you know. And, and then we pay our bill. And then I do like this. And you do like that. And then we walk off. And then you meet our mutual friend. And the mutual friend says, well, did you have lunch with Randy? Sure did. We spent probably 30, 40 minutes together over lunch. Well, good. Did you get to know him? Mm -mm. I didn't get to know him. You didn't get to know him, but you had lunch with him. Why not? Oh, because not a what? Word was spoken. What does word do? Word is what connects two parties. Here's God the Father, his creation, who's gone against him, his broken relationship, how is there going to be communication? He sends his son, who is that one through whom we get to know the Father, and the Father in turn loves us. So that's the reason the word is used. Let's skip down to number three. Why was Christ called the Lamb of God? This is important. This is, if you read it, here's John the Baptist, and he sees Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But what most people don't realize is what's preceded that. I bet a lot of you, even that are not uh, spiritual in terms of Christianity and involved in the Bible reading, you probably have at least heard of, the, uh, of Pharaoh and the Egyptians who conquer and take as captive the, uh, the Israelites who are God's people. And so to get them released... There's what's called the ten plagues. Many of you have heard of the ten plagues that were put on Pharaoh and his people. Well, one plague after the other did not convince Pharaoh to let God's people go until number ten came along. And number ten was this, that if you don't let the people go, then the first male born of every family will die. God will have them killed. And they, I don't buy that. So what God did was he told the Israelites, now look, the death angel is going to come through this place and it's going to take every male born unless there is blood that's been put over what's called the lintel, the, the head post of the door frame outside your house. If there's blood on that, then the death angel passes by. It passes over is literally the thought. And in order to do that, they were given instruction. You better take a lamb. And it has to be a specific type of lamb. It has to be a male, hear this, and without blemish. Couldn't have an eye that was out. Couldn't have be lame. The best of the best. And then they would take that little lamb with children and everybody around, and they would cut the jugular. It was not a beautiful thing. 
particularly if your kid has said, oh, yeah, that's my favorite. That's the best one of all. Don't they? There's a little mean one that bites. He's got one eye. You know, it goes. No, it has to be a male without blemish. And so they take it, they get the blood, they put it in a basin. And here's what they had to do on that very night that the angel was to pass over. They were to have a meal that became known as the Passover meal. Jewish people still hold it to this day. And they wash their hands in the blood. And then they would confess their sins as they would do that, whatever came to mind. And the idea was that that little lamb will take my sin. Because in their Old Testament it said, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so that became the Passover ritual every year. Now, do they really believe that the sins were literally put on that little physical lamb? No, it was representing another lamb. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says there, the Lamb of God that was being predicted way back then, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the earth. Jump down to number five. Number five, what did Jesus mean when he told Nicodemus that he must be born again? Do you know of a more vulgar word to use in the Christian um, in, in the uh, in the Christian language today, I've got supposedly an answer here. We're going to see if this works. Here's the, uh, here's the picture I'll show you. Imagine that uh, uh, this idea of born again. I mean, who, the idiots that run around in the world today with, you know, John 3.16, you know, tagged to their stomachs and, and they're killing people in the name of Jesus and being born again. I mean, it makes people say the last thing I want to do is associate with born again people. I know it's a very bad term, but it is one that, that God used before it was so taken and abused. But I like to say this to, a, to someone I'm meeting with. I say, let me just get to know kind of where you are. As you come in here and we start having these lunches, I'm going to give you three options to describe where you are. And you might do the same thing as you sit there. You could say that I am not a Christian. So for you over here behind me, this box is not a Christian, box number one. Box number two, I'll just put Christian. I am a Christian. Box number three says, I'll put a B dot A, I am a born again Christian. Now, where would you stand? And a lot of people I meet with say, well, I'm not a Christian. Say, well, that's why we're here together. I understand that. That's good. You know that. But some people I meet with say, well, I'm a Christian. But, you know, any evidence of that in our discussion so far has not. But he's probably saying, you know, I align with Christianity more than Buddhism or some other, you know, uh, Islam or whatever. But I'm a Christian. And then I'm a born-again Christian. They could say either one. But very few say this. I don't hear that from the guys. They say, I'm either Christian or not a Christian. So I say, okay, you're not a Christian or you are. Now. Let me give you three more options here, and let's make this situation the options of a man with his, with his wife, and maybe it's the person I'm talking to. So imagine that you wanted to have a baby, and your wife was hoping she's pregnant and saw some things that made her think, maybe I am, so she gets a pregnancy test to discover whether she is, and you're anxious to find out, is she pregnant or is she not? So she comes home, and you say, well, tell me, what did you find out from your pregnancy test? And I'll say to John, who I'm meeting with, John, um, what if your wife, she said, 
Well, I am not pregnant. That You'd understand that. What if she came home and she could say, I'm pregnant, you would understand that. What if she came home and she said, well, actually, I am semi-pregnant. I'm just kind of kind of pregnant, but not really. You go, well, sweetie, I don't think you understand pregnancy. You either are pregnant or you're not pregnant. Oh. And I said, the same, you need to understand this. These two are really synonyms according to the way Jesus used it. You're a Christian because you're born again. You're born again, which makes you a Christian. So it's really the same. And we need to understand that we shouldn't confuse that. Now, what I'm going to do before this five weeks is over, particularly in week number five, I'm going to do everything I know how to do to make it as simple and clear as possible as to what it means to be born again. Don't let the vulgarity of that term throw you. You don't have to use it to describe you, even if you become a Christian. But we do want to understand that there's something to this idea of a rebirth, and we'll get into that at another time. Let's go to number, number six. What did Jesus say was necessary to have eternal life? And the word is believe. But I want you to know this. This is where a lot of people get confused about Christianity. They hear, okay, if you believe, you have eternal life. Well, I believe, yeah, I believe Jesus lived and died, and I accept he's who he claimed to be. That is not the word belief. The word belief carries the idea of either I acknowledge something academically, believing it is so, versus I trust myself in what I believe. I put my trust in that belief. I'm going to use an illustration when we come to the, the final week that's going to really make that come clear. But uh, I'll just leave it at that right now. The last question that I would look at, and by the way, number seven and eight, I won't read and go over, but it's basically Jesus calling himself God. And when I have people tell me, well, Jesus didn't even claim to be God. Oh, no, 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 no. Look how many times in these questions, when you look up the verse, Jesus is claiming to be God straight out. So maybe he, remember liar, lunatic, he could be. He could be lying about it. He could be crazy thinking he was, but he wasn't. Or either is he claimed to be the Lord of the universe. Number nine question. Then we'll go to our Q&A from the floor. Can someone be in right relationship with God without being in right relationship with Christ? I'm not asking the question to you to say, is that true or not? I'm saying, what did Jesus say? Did he say you had to be in right relationship with him to be in right relationship with the Father? And the answer, according to the Bible, is yes. There's no doubt about that. Maybe Jesus is wrong. That's why last week we want to be discovering, is he liar, lunatic, or Lord? If he is Lord, then we'd be a fool not to follow him. If he's liar or lunatic, we'd be a fool to follow him. So that's the logic that I think we follow as we investigate. So we finished the second part. I want to move now to the time that we have left to go to our questions. And we have uh, about 15 minutes for that. And so uh, I'm going to take one from the, before you come to the floor to take the question, I'm going to take one from last week. I, I'm at least make maybe one or two. And I will say this, I was told that there was one question that was a counseling question about a personal situation that had nothing to do with the validity of Christianity or not. And I'm not going to take those questions, okay? I want the questions that are talking about the faith of Christianity. And I'm asking you, and we cannot in any way track this, but just please use the honor system. 
don't ask a question if you're one of the people from perimeter, you're somebody who says, I'm a, I'm a Christian. If you ask me, am I born again? I'd say, yes, I'm born again. But I got this question. This is not the forum. We've got guests that are friends here that are really searching to figure that I want their questions to be asked. So please honor that system and we'll let uh, that go. But let's put one up on the board that apparently came in last week. Uh, when, the first, when we first sinned, why didn't God just make us clean then? Very good question. Here's how I would answer that. The story, if we sin, that means the story of the Bible says that in Adam, our first parents, was there original human Adam and Eve? I say yes. There are historical reasons to believe the Bible is historically accurate. It was given as if it were historical. I assume that it is. But the first Adam sinned. And we read in Romans 5 that in Adam, we all sin, meaning that we take on the likeness of Adam's sin. It's called corporate personality. Corporate personality. In other words, because he sinned, therefore we are in his lineage and we sin. I may go into that even further if you're interested, but it is some very interesting stuff that comes out of that. But in a similar way, we have a second Adam in Jesus, and everybody who's in Jesus, we get treated the way Jesus is, as perfect, as if we're perfectly righteous. So that's, that's the whole concept when it says, now, instead of going through this whole long thing where people are, you know, at the end times, you know, those that are real Christians, they go to heaven. Why didn't he just clean everybody to begin with? Here's my answer. This is a very logical answer based on what we do know about God. Here's the thing. If there was somebody in your life experience that you knew was the most brilliant, the most wise, the most amazing person that you have ever, ever, ever come in contact with. Maybe the very, very, very best athlete, the very, very best actor, the very, very best, whatever it is, they're just absolutely the very best. Imagine the honor that we're giving to sports figures and, and all kind of people and they're various, the best of the worlds. And we honor them, and they get glory. Now, you need to know that God made it real clear that his reason for putting people on earth was to glorify him. If he's perfect in God, he has the right to have those that would glorify him. Now, let's assume that God did not allow sin, which is basically, why don't you just let sin not be ever happen and it's done away with? So there's no sin at all. So everybody who's created ends up going to heaven, right? Now, God is certainly a perfect God, right? God would be all-knowing, so he's brilliant. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. And we would have all reason to say, wow, God, great glory. But let me ask you this. What if you knew somebody who was all of those things and at the same time, sacrificed everything they had for you who had done nothing but hurt them. And they gave you everything you needed in life, even though you deserved nothing. Now, here's the question. If that had never happened with God, God had never done something that we did not ever really deserve, such as sending his son to die for sinners, would God be a merciful God? 
He would be, wouldn't he? Because God's the same yesterday, day, and forever. Would people know him as a merciful God? No. Would God be a forgiving God? Oh, absolutely. He's the same God. Would any of his creation know him as a forgiving God? Not at all. Imagine which would get the greater glory. The one who has shown incredible forgiveness and mercy and grace and all those things that we would never see God. We know that he was that kind of God. We'd never seen it demonstrated. By this way, we see the full beauty of who he is, and he gets the fullness of honor. I think that would be why I can build a human, reasonable understanding that God would plan the way he does. But as I mentioned last week, remember the dot and line. There are things offline that we'll never understand because we're creation and he's not. But that would be a good way you could look at it just from a human perspective. All right? Let's put up one more from last from last, and then I'll take the floor if you've got one. What, uh, what if I don't really feel empty or as if I'm lost or on a search for glory? Although no one's life is perfect, I feel relatively satisfied and content. You know, I would use the word of Jesus there. He says, look, if you're not, if you're not sick, you don't need a doctor. I mean, if you're fine, I wouldn't be looking for something else. I mean, I'd say if I think I've got eternal life, I've got everything that I need, it's all wrapped up for me, and you're presenting something else, I go, no, go for it. Maybe you're right, but I think most of us here would say that's really not true. Or if, it's, if we feel that way now, there'll come a time where we go, uh-oh, it's not what I'd hoped it was going to be. Don't know. But I do believe you've hit a good point. Uh, Jesus said himself, he said, he said to the Pharisees, you don't feel you're in need uh, of being better. You think you're already pretty good? Then you're not going to want Jesus. And Jesus kind of turned and went to the people who said, I feel like I need help. And uh, so I think that's a very reasonable question. And I would say I'd understand why you wouldn't want to search. All right. Let's see if we got one from the floor, and then we'll kind of flip them back and forth if we still got some more from last week. But here's one right back here. Good. Thank you. I'm Jewish. Mm -hmm. from Originally, my grandma is. And I am just curious about religion. I love learning about it. So I was wondering if you knew of any written evidence that proved, or just was evidence in general, about the Israelites being in um, Egypt. Any historical evidence? Oh, yeah. I think there's plenty of historical evidence that the... Yeah, from the Egyptian history on back, absolutely. I, I don't think there's, there's doubt about that. Now, we could find you what that is. I, don't, I can't recall it off my head by any stretch of the imagination, but I will certainly tell you there's plenty of history that would, that would document that. And by the way, one thing very interesting of being a Jewish person, I always, when I hear somebody say they're Jewish, I think, ooh, that's cool. In this regard, you're part of the very people that God used to demonstrate his great love. And uh, Jewish people, by the way, were not, were not favorite people. It wasn't that Jewish people were just better people or prettier people or sweeter people. It wasn't that at all. God chose to be the favored people. In other words, he showed favor to them for one purpose, and that was to model his love to the rest of the world. And a lot of people think, I talk to Jewish people that say, my people just don't believe in Jesus. I've, I've often asked many Jewish people, you know, why don't you believe that Jesus was the Messiah? He was Jewish, and he claimed to be. What, on what basis do you not? And my answer that I typically hear, not every answer, but my typical answer is, I don't know, that's just what my people believe. But, you know, there is a whole movement today in the Jewish world of what's called Messianic Jews or completed Jews who do believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they keep all their Jewish heritage. 
They don't throw it away and become as if they were a, a Gentile. They don't need to do that. There's so much beauty, oh, so much wonder and splendor in the Jewish culture. And they're finding out, hey, I can be a completed Jew or a Messianic Jew and still keep all the beauty of my, of my uh, past there. So that's a great question. Um, is there one on the, the board here we want to take? If not, I'll take another one here. In particular, one came today. All right, got one up here. Okay, how much did the first century church rely on the scriptures? Old Testament, uh, Old Testament in their gathering, and how much emphasis was placed on the letters they received from Paul, Peter, James, etc.? Well, it depends on when. In the first century, you understand that most of the scriptures of the New Testament were not really completed until the 90s AD. I mean, so you're almost the end of the first century before, you know, they were completed and being copied. So uh, there was a lot of oral tradition until, you know, they were copied and got to their place and so forth. So, but much of the Old Testament was, that's why you see Jesus quoting the Old Testament so very, very much. In the rabbinic schools uh, and so forth, you had to memorize so much of the Old Testament to be able to, to get such and such uh, position and so forth. Uh, if you were going to be a Pharisee or whatever, you had to study, 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 and know large, large amounts by memory of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was certainly there and very available at that time in the early church. But it was not until after that that the New Testament documents became to be available to various places. All right, They were first written to a particular church in, a, like in, the, in the city of Corinth. Uh, the book of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians. So they would get that book, and they would know that book, but they wouldn't know the book of Galatians, perhaps, at that time. So they only had pieces of it as, a, uh, as time developed on. Okay? One from the floor here you'd like to ask? Good questions here we're getting. Any of here? All right. I'll go back up to, you got another one here? If not, we'll, okay. Why would God put that evil tree in the garden <laughs> Okay, the tree was not evil, all right? The tree was not evil. It was a good tree, but it was forbidden tree. And if you know the story of the earliest chapters of Genesis, you, you have this story where God is telling them, I don't want you to partake of that particular fruit because if you do, you have violated my will. And so he has a, uh, they're really given a, a restriction and the obedience that was required of that restriction would prove that their heart was not perfect. And so then they had to be put outside that so that there would be the hope for redemption. And so if you know the story, there was, a, there was a, an angel with a, a sword there to say, don't come back in because that's the worst thing that ever happened to you right now. And there's hope that's going to be coming by the one who would hang on the tree. And so you have the prophecy coming then of the... Uh, right after that, of the Messiah to come. But in terms of why God would do it that way, I don't know. Uh, you know what he did, and you understand that he did it in, in certain reasons because it was going to be a restriction to show the heart and so forth. But why did he do it that way? I, I, I wouldn't know, uh, but it's a good question. Good question. Any more right here while we got the, the audience? I want to take as many as you have. Have any? All right, let's see. Uh, well, our time is, yeah, that's, that's our hour now. We'll stop there since there are no more questions from the floor. And um, again, you can go to perimeter.org slash 
if answers, that's right, perimeter.org slash if answers. And you can see uh, questions that have been asked. You can get this week's. We'll have this up probably Monday or Tuesday if you want to go online. And you go there to get this, perimeter.org slash what? It's up on the board. Okay, there you go. So you got it. We'll keep that up so you can find out if you want to go back to that. Feel free to bring any friends next week. The better they can look back and see what we've already covered, all the better. But uh, and if they ask a question we've already covered, I'll let them know that and they can go back. But uh, just know that this is an open forum for any that would like to, to find out and investigate. And we hope it's helpful. All I'm trying to do, let me make it clear, all I'm trying to do is to give you the answers and, and relatively appropriate answers, I think, to what the Christian faith would say. And I think when you finish five weeks, you'll be able to say, I have done an investigation, and you make the decision that you believe about who Jesus is, okay? Can I pray for you? All right, let's do that. Father, I pray for our friends all gathering here, just investigating and thinking through this. Some of us already your children, just trying to understand some of the things that we're, uh, we've heard, and, and we want to believe with conviction and with reason. So, but Lord, just I pray that you would help us, uh, particularly our, our good uh, uh, friends here that are guests that are si trying to figure this thing out. Uh, make it a profitable time, and may they be pleased that they came. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.